Well, this morning we arrive at uh, the fourth chapter of James. And we've been traveling through the book of James in a series that we've called Keeping It Real. James, the half-brother of Jesus, spoke to Jewish Christians who were scattered among the nations because of the persecution they experienced because of their faith. So they're seeking to live out this real and genuine faith, and, uh, and, and they face persecution and pressure because of that. And, and so they scatter for their own safety. And so then James writes this letter to encourage his readers in these trials and to urge them to continue to live faithful Christian lives even in these new and difficult circumstances. And so James has been writing about real faith issues and how to live out a real faith. We've already covered many practical aspects of faith, of our faith, and today I'm just going to say that it gets pretty real and personal So I feel like I have to kind of make a disclaimer up front. Um, This message may make us uncomfortable. You probably won't like some of the things that James has to say. Now somehow I feel that just saying that up front and preparing you now will maybe soften the blow a little bit later. And you can't say that I didn't warn you. One of my favorite metaphors for the Christian life is just that of a journey. It's like a journey, a walk. And, uh, and about a year ago, we sat down as a staff team, and we just really said, who, who are we as a church, and what is God calling us to do? And, and uh, we went through a process where we defined our mission at TCC, which is really just a, a, a restatement of the Great Commission, is to know Jesus, walk with Jesus, and to share Jesus. And so this, this idea of walking with Jesus is kind of embedded right in uh, the mission of, of our church. And so this simply means that we come to know Jesus personally, we, we continue to grow in that knowledge, we walk with Jesus as a companion in life, and so we just live out our faith in a real way, day by day, that we walk then with Him, even in the company of others, we, we experience community together as we're walking with Him and with others, and um, we find great joy in ultimately sharing Jesus with others, so that they too might come to know Jesus and kind of repeat this this cycle. And so, to know Jesus, to walk with Jesus, and to share Jesus. But this Christian walk is not always an easy walk. And uh, it's hard to stay on that narrow path sometimes. It's easy for us to get a little off track, and sometimes even a lot off track. Each of us have probably experienced that when when we've sung... um, The hymn, Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings, there's this incredible line that always kind of just stops me as we're singing. And it's just this, it's prone to wander. Do you know this song? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And and I feel like oftentimes when I'm singing, I'm going, God, I'm sorry, but that is my heart sometimes, that I I am prone. I'm, I'm drawn away all too easily sometimes from following you. And so it's helpful for us to check in on a regular basis to make sure that we're still following the right path. In, in uh, the summer of 2016, I was given an incredible blessing from the church, and those of you who were part of uh, our church in that time knew that, that I was on a three-month sabbatical that summer. And a generous family at TCC allowed me to stay in their townhouse in Canmore for a little over a month. 
And most of that month I was there by myself. I obviously then spent most of my days in silence. I read, I prayed, and every day I walked and prayed. And it was just this incredible blessing in my life to pull away from all of the, 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 the busyness and craziness of life and ministry that it can be sometimes and just experience this silence and solitude and just, and just to allow God to refresh me through that process. And so as I walked around the, the area, at first I started out with a map that I would take with me. And many of the trails in Canmore, if you're familiar with this, they're well marked. And there are many signs along the path that would help me to get orientated to my surroundings. And most of these maps, you know, whether it's even in a mall or anywhere else, you, you come up to them and there's a big red dot, right? You are here. And it was easy to locate myself then on the map and where I was. But I also then discovered eventually that that these trails, many of them actually appeared on Google Maps. And so I would just start off on a trail and I'd pull out my phone and check my location, especially when I kind of came to a fork in the path and I wasn't quite sure if I go this way, how many kilometers am I going to go out of the way and should I go this way? And it just helped me continually know where I wanted to go and really where I was at too. And whenever I felt like I was a little unsure about which direction to go or things might seem a little bit unfamiliar, it was a new path that day, I would check to make sure that I was still good. And then if I was a little bit off course, I could correct my walk and get back on track. This passage in James this morning um, gives us what I want to say are, are three signs that we're off track, that we've maybe wandered off course a little bit. But he also gives this incredible invitation to help us make a course correction. And then he actually gives us the steps to get back on the right path. And so that's uh, the outline that we're going to follow this morning. So I invite you to take your Bibles if you have them. James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. And and, uh, as you know, we love to refer to the scriptures as we preach and teach. And so if you have your Bibles, keep your finger in there. Um, It'll be initially up here on the screen as I read it to you. Um, Maybe you have a smartphone. I'm not going to judge you if you don't have a good, you know, the real thing, right? But... uh, um, it's there. James 4, 1 to let me read it because I think it's always good to, to have us in context here. What is causing, listen to this, how direct he gets, the quarrels and fights among you. Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. It's your choice, he says. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. 
Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. I warned you, right? Some strong words from James. And he's already been pretty hard on his readers, but now the gloves really come off. And so I invite you to just examine your own life in view of these signs that might indicate that we're off track. Number one is conflict. There's conflict in our lives. And he starts by talking about quarrels and fights among them. So this was happening among them in in their Christian fellowship. And it's actually pretty serious because he's talking about quarrels, which are like disputes. And it even sounds like their conflict escalated and maybe even got a little violent. There's fights. It's hard for us to to imagine or picture, but it's true. It's happened. But James does more than just describe what is actually happening. He, He gets to the root cause of the conflict. He says this about the conflict. He says this, don't those conflicts, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you. You see, James is saying that the conflicts in our lives arise because of some of the unmet desires in our hearts. Ken Sandy writes this about conflict. He says, When we feel we cannot be satisfied unless we have something we want or think we need, that desire turns into a demand. And if someone fails to meet that desire... We condemn him in our heart and quarrel and fight to get our way. In short, conflict arises when desires grow into demands and we judge and punish those who get in our way. Conflict always begins with some kind of desire. And and, and some of those desires are just plain wrong. Vengeance, lust, greed. We want something so bad. And then if we don't get it, we're ready to, to, to fight. We get all worked up about it. But sometimes desires in and of themselves are not wrong. So the key really is is what we do with those desires that matter. And ultimately, we can either trust God to meet our our needs, or we can dwell on our own disappointments and allow it to control our lives. And then at the very least, the result ends up being self-pity and bitterness towards others, jealousy, At worst, it can just destroy relationships. I'm sure we can all think of our own personal examples, and many of them are tragic, right? And sometimes this is as simple as as you want to make a a sports team at school so badly, and you're in in competition with other other, other teammates, and maybe they get the position and you don't. Maybe it's a promotion at work. You set your heart on it, and you want it, and you work for it, and you think you're so deserving of it. And then it goes to someone else. And all of this stuff just does icky stuff in our hearts. And here's the really hard part. So then when we're experiencing this kind of conflict, we have to stop and ask ourselves, okay, God, this is happening. This is what I'm feeling. But what is my part? What am I contributing to this conflict? What desire do I have that is suddenly now going unmet? And is that desire wrong? You see, asking these types of questions will actually begin to reveal what's going on in our hearts. 
You see, when we're in conflict with another person, we tend to focus on what the other person has done or what they should then do to make things right. But God always calls us to focus on what is going on in our own hearts when we're in conflict. Why? Because our hearts are the source of all of our thoughts, our words, our actions, and therefore they become the source of our conflicts. In Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus says this about the heart. He says, For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. And so James then goes on to say this in verse 2. He says, You want what you don't have. And so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you, you can't get it, so you, you fight and wage war to take it away from them. And so, friends, we need to pay attention. That conflict in our lives may, in fact, be a sign that our hearts are not in tune with God's. There's another sign that James talks about, and it's this prayerlessness and wrong motives. It's just a lack of prayer in our lives. It comes from we're thinking we're self-sufficient or that, that, that uh, somehow, maybe even that you know, God is above these little issues in my life and so I don't need to go to him. And then if we are praying, he says that we might actually have the wrong motives where our desires are wrong. And so he, he says in verses 2 and 3, he says, Yet you don't have what you want. Still getting on this issue of desires and demands. You don't have it. He says, because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You see... When we're walking with Jesus, when we are keeping in step with the Spirit, when we're regularly and consistently talking with God, we pray continually, it just becomes as natural as as breathing. But when we lose our way, when we start to wander, and maybe this is just true in my own life, one of the first things to go is prayer. And sometimes we're in a conflict and we get so confused by or so consumed by it that, that it draws all of our attention. You see, the questions I posed earlier about stopping and asking ourselves about our part or about how we might be contributing to the, to, to the conflict, that kind of self-examination is actually done in prayer. So then we stop and we say, God, what desire do I have? that is going unmet in my life. And God, is this desire that I have, is it wrong? Does it not line up with your will for my life, the best laid plan that you have for my life? And ultimately, we have to ask God to search our heart. So we say, God, show me my heart. Show me those motives in my heart that, I, that I'm often oblivious to myself. But James doesn't just call out our prayerlessness. He also calls out the wrong motives when we do pray. In other words, he flat out says, your prayers are selfish. You only want what will give you pleasure. You're just thinking about yourself. Peter David says this about this. He says, this is not, get this, because I think it's important to get this. This is not the trusting child asking for a meal. But the greedy child asking for the best piece, or the spoiled child demanding his or her own way. So again, 
James lays out something that we should pay attention to. Prayerlessness or praying with selfish motives may be a sign that we are out of step with God, that we have wandered off the path. The third sign is compromise. Now, as if we weren't uncomfortable enough already because this conflict in our lives, it's because of the unmet desires in our lives. Prayer lives that are a shambles because either we don't pray at all or if we do, we only think of ourselves. And now James just turns up the heat a little bit more. Even when I read it, I don't know if you caught me pausing. I didn't pause for a fact. I almost had to choke that word out a little bit. You adulterers. Nobody wants to be called an adulterer. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Now, these are strong words. James isn't pulling any punches here. He hits hard. This is a direct body blow. He absolutely rebukes his readers for their unfaithfulness. You adulterers. And he graphically describes the spiritual unfaithfulness of people who have wandered away from God and from the very God that they say they love and follow. And so this idea of adultery against God is taken from the Old Testament. When God's people turned to idolatry, they they tried to combine the worship of God and the worship of other gods. And so God just said of them, they're committing adultery because they're being unfaithful to God. And the fact that God would express the, the importance of faithful to him, faithfulness to him in such a powerful and graphic language, it ought to unsettle us. I mean, we live in a culture where we, we are constantly tempted to compromise. Our culture tells us that we should be a little more tolerant towards sin, a little less judgmental about it. Our culture attacks standards of personal, marital, and sexual behavior. And friends, as, as Christians, as followers of the way, followers of Jesus. What he's saying here is, is you, you can't have it both ways. You can't get all cozy with the world and not expect it to impact your relationship with God in some way. Now, there's, you know this, right? There's huge differences between the values of the culture and a life lived according to God's values. And so being faithful to God and biblical values will often put us in opposition with our culture. That's why he says, don't you realize, James asks, that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Why does he say that? Because we cannot satisfy the demands of both. Friends, can I be direct with us this morning? Please do not let social media shape your worldview or every blog that you read or even your own personal experience. Like, I'm afraid that sometimes our values are defined by a link that a friend shared on Facebook. And so we read it, and we're like, oh, that makes good sense. That's what I believe. We have a small little chalkboard in our kitchen that Tina will write a verse or a quote from something she read or maybe a sermon she listened to, and Some of you might be familiar with uh, Alistair Begg and his Truth For Life radio program. And so for a while, this is what was up on our board. And um, every time we read it, it's like, ah, yeah. This is what it said. Don't allow the prevailing standards of a godless culture 
to influence your thinking in such a way that what is morally abnormal you think is normal. Don't allow the prevailing standards of a godless culture to influence your thinking in such a way that what is morally abnormal you think is normal. Many years with an Amish man. Now, I actually wasn't reading it with him. It was about him, but you get, you get the point. And, um, you know, the Amish are just known for simple living. They're plain dress, they horse and buggies. And, and, and they have this reluctance to adopt many conveniences of modern technology. And so in this interview, the man is asked why they don't have TVs. And I'll never forget his answer. This is what he said. He says, we already have a sewer line flowing out of our house. Why would we have one flowing into our house? That's pretty graphic. And I'm not about to get rid of my TV, nor am I suggesting that you should. But what I am saying is that it should cause us to pause and then commit to being more discerning about what we watch. Because all of the input that we have coming at us from all of these different forms of media, if we let it, it will ultimately shape our worldview. Instead, our worldview needs to be shaped by the Bible. And if it is, we shouldn't be surprised then at times that we will stand in opposition to our culture. And so when we read our Bibles, we can then ask the question, so what does God say about and fill in the blank? And you study the Word. And that's why we offered in the last year, Pastor Adam taught it, how to read the Bible. It seems so basic, but that's where we need to start so that we can read it, that we can learn from it, and that we can ultimately have it shape the way that we think. You can't read the New Testament without repeated reminders from the Apostle Paul saying, you need to renew your thinking. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so it's important that we understand the story of the Bible. And more recently, Adam taught a course called God's Big Picture, and it just traced the storyline of the Bible from beginning to end. So, So that in view of the big picture of God's story, what is God saying? How do we make sense of it? How do we interpret that in light of what we know about the whole Bible and not just a verse or two? And so we have these signs. Conflict, I want to say confused prayer, it's a lack of prayer, it's wrong motives, there's compromise in our lives. They're all signs that indicate that we're not walking in step with God. And as I said earlier, I think our natural tendency is to wander, to drift, and therefore we need to be so careful and so intentional. And I think that James's words here just becomes this huge wake-up call for us. His invitation is for us to take a good long look in the mirror and see ourselves as we really are. And often, if we're honest, it's not very pretty. And if we're totally honest with ourselves, I think we would admit that there are times in our lives when our loyalty is divided. Or that, as James uses the phrase, we're double-minded. And so while we might declare a desire to be faithful to God, our actions, in fact, reveal that we have many other idols in our lives. And an idol is defined in biblical biblical terms is this, anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. So having an idol, or usually it's the plural form, right? We don't just have one, we probably have many. Idols means that we're choosing something else over God. 
So think about it just in big picture terms. We can make idols out of money or sex or power. In biblical terms, it's something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivates us, that masters and rules us, or that we trust, fear, or serve. In short, it is something that we love and pursue in place of God. And we all have them. And they mess up our lives. That's why I I think I got the line in there, Dave, right? This is the song you know, she'll know it. But I think it was tear down the idols in our hearts and in our homes. That's a prayer, friends, that we probably need to pray more often. God, what are the idols in my life? Please tear them down. I mean, do I need to illustrate this? And I'll, I'll try to do this quickly. But just, just think, let's just use money as an example, because that's something that we can all relate to. If we think ultimately that money is what will make us happy, okay, we have just made money an idol in our lives. Simple, right? And as soon as that idol is there, it's something that we begin to desire. We start to seek after it. We want it at all costs. This desire starts to grow. Then it changes into demands. And ultimately, we start having conflict with the people around us because of it. We're so consumed by this desire for money that that we then live this prayerless life. Or if we do pray, we're asking God for more money. (laughs) You know, because it's just consuming us all. And friends, we know when we have these idols in our lives and we start to pursue them at the expense of following God, it just leaves a train wreck of relationships, broken relationships. And so it's not a pretty picture, is it? But here's the good news. Look at the Savior's invitation. Because right in the midst of all of those words, as strong as they are, he stops and he says, but God gives grace generously. He gives grace generously. He gives more grace. In verse 5, James says that the scriptures themselves say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. I like the New International Version. He says, He jealously longs for the Spirit that He has caused to dwell in us. Can we even understand this? Imagine this. God is jealous for a relationship with us. He's passionate about us. Do you realize that? The God of the universe is crazy about you. He desires to have a relationship with you. I mean, does it get any better than that? And it's all because of grace. Getting from him what we don't deserve. So I think it was the very first song we said, you laid down your life for me. That's why it's amazing grace. He loved us so much that God gave his only son to die for our sins because he knew that we would be wanderers at our core. And he knew that we would do the things that we shouldn't do and that we would not do the things that we should do. He knew that our motives would get messed up. And so he gives us more grace. He gives grace generously. But there is a catch. And it's not that it's a conditional love. But he doesn't give this grace to the proud and the self-sufficient. 
It's really what Dave was saying earlier. That we have to come with a poverty of spirit and say, God, I absolutely, desperately need you. In other words, we can't receive his grace until we realize that we need it and we come humbly to him. That's why he says, God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. That might not square with our our view of a happy, loving, kind father. But he is all of that, and yet, he says, but until you acknowledge your need for my grace, I can't even give it to you. So come, here's more grace. It's this posture of humility that God is looking for. Friends, I, I think my time is gone, and I don't want us to, to get too long here, and I have way too much. So I'm going to run through these steps of repentance really quick. They're hard steps, but I also think they're easy um, because we now already know the response. Right? It, it, it's, it's the posture of, of the the parable of the prodigal son. And it was the son who says he came to his senses and then he determined to say his father, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And God the Father welcomed him with open arms and throws a party for him because he's crazy about his son. He loves him so much and he's passionate about him. So that's the end result. But how do we get there? Let me throw these up at real quick. Number one, Submit yourselves to God. That's where it starts. These are all right in the text. If you miss any of these, they're on the insert too, but they're right there in in, in verses 7 through 10. We just start by humbling ourselves, allowing God to, to, to point out areas of our lives that need correcting and then actually correcting Him. Secondly, He says, resist the devil. Because as soon as you want to get back on track, you're going to meet opposition. Because you know what? You have an enemy We have an enemy who makes it very clear that his priority, his purpose, is to steal, kill, and destroy. And so he's out for us. You know what's cool is he says, just resist the devil. And here's the promise. He will flee from you. Friends, I have to tell you, even this morning, I knew that this would be maybe not a lighthearted, fun sermon. And it was heavy. And I was feeling this, just this pressure. And I, and I talked to Ken and, and, and he just went, you know what? And he just started praying because of the negative thoughts and, and, and realizing that we have an enemy that seeks to knock us off path. So it's not just ourselves and our own kind of propensity sometimes. So resist the devil. I said I was going to go through these fast. No, I'm not. Come close to God. What an invitation. That's his invitation, right? It's, it's an invitation to intimacy. The relationship is made right, and we discover God's presence and his love and his forgiveness. And the promise is, he says, God will come close to you. Then he says, wash your hands, right? Our hands represent our actions. And so we confess our sins. Purify your hearts, right? Because again, remember I said earlier about our hearts, they represent our motives and our thoughts. And so we ask God to purify our hearts so that we're single-minded in our devotion to him. We grieve. Now this is the first of three terms that kind of capture this struggle of a soul drawing near to God. Grief because there's a death that takes place when we grieve over our sin. And it begins by being absolutely broken over our sin and the fact that we've violated God's way. So we grieve we mourn, we wail, 
right? We just understand the magnitude of, of our sin, and it, it, it may absolutely move us to tears. It says, this is a hard one. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's like there's this suddenness, this sudden awareness that, man, my life is not in sync with God's, and what do I need to do to get back? We've missed God's mark, and it just breaks our hearts. And so how can we, you know, we have to take sin seriously at that point. And lastly, humble yourselves. You see, we can basically where we started, because as we go through these steps, we finally come to the place where God can really meet us with, the, with His grace and lift us up. But we got to humble ourselves. And it may involve, you know, going and apologizing to people. It may mean making some really difficult decisions. It's not easy sometimes. Some pain on our part. But as we go through this process, I want to just say to you, you will experience God's grace over and over and over again in a whole new way. And so we humble ourselves. We admit that we're off track, that we've missed God's mark, and He gives His grace generously to everyone. And then He ends with this incredible promise. He says, He will lift you up in honor because you've humbled yourself. He will lift you up. He will lift you up. And we walk out our lives in this humble dependence on God, continually making the course corrections as necessary because we're in tune to those times that we're out of alignment with God. Let's pray. Father, I can only pray again. Spirit, speak that through your grace. Lord, I I can't even imagine to begin to think about what's happening in people's hearts and minds right now. But Lord, my prayer right now is that they would just stop, reflect, think, look at their own lives and see where are the things in my life that I have made idols, something that I'm pursuing at the cost of other things, pleasure, joy, money, prestige, whatever it is. God, it's so varied. I mean, there's just so many ways to sin. But God, help us this morning more than anything, more than anything, what we would hear is that God gives more grace Your grace is greater than all of our sin. So God, that we would not just sing about your amazing grace, but that we would know it, that we would experience it, that it would be true in our lives. That as we seek to just walk humbly with you, to love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly with you. God, that that would be our life mission. So thank you for walking with us. Thank you for the promise that as we come near to you, you're already there, waiting with open arms, ready to embrace, to speak your love and forgiveness over our lives. So God, you do what only you can do in each of our hearts and lives this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.